0: Okay, good Sunday to be here. We're starting a new series called Faith Full. If you had a faith tank, how full is your faith tank? I think some of ours are running a little low, especially the last two years have been, been a, a struggle. Uh, maybe you have some sp- specific uh, challenges in your life. So um, we're going to talk about it for the next uh, five or six weeks about maybe if our faith isn't as, as full as we'd like or... Maybe we're, it's shaky, and maybe we're not even sure, or maybe we've lost that faith. Um, we're going to try and help you with that. So today's topic is unshakable. Now, <clears throat> when I meet somebody that has what I would consider unshakable faith, uh, a question that often comes to my mind is, I don't know if I would have that much faith in that cir- circumstance or that situation. If I was going through that, that illness or that financial problem or that relationship problem, whatever it might be, I don't know if I would have as much faith as those folks do. They just seem to understand and to know that God's in control and it's, God's going to take care of it, and no matter what happens, it's going to be fine. Also, those type of people inspire me, <laughs> and I'm sure they inspire you too. In fact, we would call that kind of faith, we might call it amazing faith. Because it is amazing to us that people can be that steady in unshakable times. So the interesting thing to me was that Jesus was only amazed by two things according to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts we have of Jesus' life. We can find two times that Jesus was amazed. So I thought we'd look at those first and see what amazed Jesus. So the first account is in Matthew and we're going to read it, begin reading. <clears throat> this is uh, chapter eight. Jesus returned to Capernaum. A Roman officer came to plead with him. Now, Jesus is there with his disciples. This Roman officer comes. Now, when you you need to realize the Romans were the ones that had occupied, they had enslaved your country. So they're your enslavers, and this officer represents them, right? And so you don't want to have any contact with them. Probably any contact with them is going to be negative. They're going to want you to do something or force you to do something you don't want to do. And I'm I'm sure the disciples are thinking, Jesus is going to get rid of this guy real quick. So text goes on. Lord, my young... Oh, I haven't finished reading that yet. <laughs> Can we back up? There we go. Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. So he's there to... to uh, request Jesus' help with a servant. Not even with himself, but with a servant. So Jesus is going to say, I don't have time for you, or you're you're my enemy, I'm not going to help you. Is that what Jesus is going to say? It's fascinating. Jesus says what? I will come and heal him. You're my enemy. I don't know this servant of yours. I don't really know you. But yeah, sure, I'll come. But, now this is so fascinating. The officer this pagan Roman officer says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. The disciples are thinking that. Yeah. Jesus, you're not going to go, you know, become unclean by going to this guy's house. This guy realizes that and he says this. No, 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 I don't want you to come. Just say the word from where you are, right here. <laughs> and my servant, we don't know where he is, but he's not there, he's somewhere away. And my servant will be healed you just say it here and he'll be healed over there. He goes on to explain his reasoning or his logic. He says, I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers. Okay, so I'm a Roman soldier. So there's officers ahead of me. But I'm also, I'm over a hundred soldiers myself. He says centur- centurion. I have authority over my soldiers. So, One's under me, I just say go and they go or come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, cuz he's a slave owner, do this, they do it. So, all he has to do is say the word and they obey. Why? The question is why? Why was a Roman soldier listen to him? Why would a servant listen to him? Because he's a man of authority over them or he represents an authority. So, a Roman soldier isn't only answerable to this guy, he's answerable all the way up to who? The emperor. All right? You could be in trouble with the emperor if he didn't listen to this officer. So, because of that authority, these folks obey, whether soldiers or servants. Text goes on. When Jesus heard this, this man's declaration of, you don't need to come, just say the word. He was, here's our word, right? He was amazed. Another word, trans, some translate, translate this word as marveled. I don't know what you marvel at or what amazes you, but this is what amazed Jesus. Turning to those who were following him, that would be his disciples, right? He said, i tell you the truth. Whole truth, nothing but the truth. I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. In all Judaism, and all the Jews I know, I haven't seen faith that this pagan Roman officer is demonstrating. So what was it? How is it different? Well, somehow, this guy understood, comprehended that Jesus was a man of authority, and the authority was over health, life. But he had authority over that, and so consequently, all he had to do was speak, and it would happen. Amazing. Amazes me thinking about it. It amazed Jesus as he participated. Now, on the flip side, I read this statement, and I wasn't quite sure about it, but I haven't been able to to, to prove it wrong. Jesus was never amazed by two things that I would think he would be amazed by, and maybe you too. He wasn't amazed by anybody's knowledge or wisdom or insight. He didn't come up to somebody, man, I, I'm just I'm blown away by your insight into this, this aspect of Christianity or, or Judaism in his, his, his case. Never said that. Never was amazed at anybody's insight or knowledge. The other thing, the most surprising thing to me was, he was never amazed by anybody's obedience. You know, law says this and law says it, so I'm doing it. We don't have any incidents where Jesus said, Wow, I'm amazed that you are so obedient to God. And when we talk about this faith, it's not a, an intellectual faith. It's not an in-your-head faith. You know, I just believe whatever. I believe the sky is blue, whatever it is. This is an active faith. This is a belief that results in action. In this case, the healing of His servant. Now, so... That's the one example. There's another example of when Jesus was amazed, and it's kind of just the opposite. And this is also quoted in, uh, uh, actually in Mark, Mark chapter 6. So Jesus is out ministering. He left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth. What's Nazareth? Where Jesus grew up, his hometown, right? And the Sabbath comes along. He begins, begins teaching in the synagogue, their church. And many heard him, and the people were amazed. All right? At this point, the people are amazed. And they asked themselves, Where did he, Jesus, get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? So he was kind of like a hometown hero. But I don't know about you, the town you grew up in, if you had hometown heroes. But um, there's two reactions you can have you can say, Hey, yeah, 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 or what? Well, he's not special about them, they're not any better than I am. And that seems to be exactly what happens here. So the text goes on. I just love how honest the Scripture is. Then they scoffed. Even though they're amazed, they scoffed. He's just a carpenter. Now, I always thought that's a big deal, right? He's a carpenter. It's an honest profession. I've, I've been a carpenter one phase of my life. But as, as I was studying, the commentators say this was an insult. You know, you're not a, a learned man, an educated man. Uh, you're not a Uh, you know, a wealthy man, or you're not a man of uh, important person. You're just a a day laborer. You work with your hands. And then a second insult is this. It it doesn't say you're the son of Joseph, who probably had died at this point. But he's still the son of Joseph, right? According to their their perspective. But you say you're the son of a woman, Mary, is an insult. So they They scoffed and they insulted him twice. And then he mentions the siblings of Jesus. The boys are mentioned by name, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And he had sisters too. So we've seen this guy grow up with his siblings, with his mother. And now he's in this, you know, just working with his hands. And they were offended and deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Even though they were amazed at his teaching and some of the miracles he did. And so what's Jesus' response? What's Jesus' reaction? Well, Jesus told them, a prophet, calling himself a prophet, is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. So Mark is writing this, probably Peter's account, says this, he, Jesus, was not able to do miracles there except laying hands on a few sick people and heal them. So then Jesus responds, or account of Jesus' reaction. He, Jesus, was amazed. Here's our word again, right? He was amazed at what? Their faith? No, just the opposite, their lack of faith. So according to the Gospels, the accounts we have, only two things amazed Jesus, and they concerned the same thing. One was great faith, and the other was Lack of faith. So I think it's pretty important we understand what faith is, right? And there's a lot of confusion about faith. Can, can I grow faith? I mean, faith like a mustard seed can move a mountain. It just seems like, man, if I have any, I can do. It's just kind of confusing. And there's a couple of ways I think we inside the church make it confusing. It's important to understand that faith has to have an object. Faith has to have an object. You can't have faith in faith. You can't have faith in optimism. You can't have faith in uh, anything like that. That's the next slide, please. <clears throat> uh, it's not wishful thinking. It's just not hoping something will happen. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Say you're, some, some folks are going to get on, uh, I think it's June 1st, they're going to get on a plane to fly to Puerto Rico. Right. So you're hopeful that the, plane, the flight's going to be fine, right? You're optimistic the flight's going to be fine. But you don't have faith in that. You have faith in what? Well, you have faith in the people that built the airplane, the people that, mechanics that work on the airplane, and you have faith in the pilot of the airplane, right? So faith has to have an object. The other thing that's a little confusing is faith doesn't, isn't the same thing as everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to work out. The object of faith is not a particular outcome that you and I might want. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all good. I have faith this person's going to be healed and they're going to be healed. I have faith that, you know, I'm going to get a good job and I'm going to get a good job. I'm going to have faith. No, no, no. That's not what faith is. So Jesus comes along and he says, okay, I'm going to establish myself as the object of your faith. And the fascinating thing we're going to talk about is they could see him, right? Up until then, you had faith in, well, let's read the next text. In John, this is Jesus' last conversation with his disciples, last night of his life. And uh, fascinating. Uh, What's this, like four chapters. (laughs) And John's the only one who records this. In chapter 14, it starts out this way. Do not let your heart be destroyed troubled, or distressed, you believe in God. You have faith in God, Yahweh, the Jewish God, right? Um, now, the fascinating thing is that in Greek, there's no word for trust. You know, you're reading along in the Greek and you say, oh, that means trust. No, there's no Greek word for trust. So John is the first one that records this phrase. He's the first one that combines the Greek word for believe with the Greek word for in. So it's just not believe, but it's believe in, which we could translate trust. So, he said you, you believe in or trust in God. Now, believe or trust in me. I am to be the object of of your faith. Couldn't see, you can't see God, but you can see me. Should make it a little easier, right? So, on your outline, Jesus came to show us what God is like. Now, if I was to ask folks here present, what is God like? Every one of you would probably give me a little different answer. Some of it would be the same, some would be different. We all have assumptions about what God is like. Um, I like the illustration of all of us have God in our our assumption box. You know, I assume God's like this and God's like this and God's not like this. And I kind of laugh because anytime you and I try and put God in a box, what's God do? I'm God, you're not. You're not going to put me in a box. And so all of us have, like too strong a word, but wrong assumptions our conceptions of who God is and what God is like and what God will do. So, Jesus comes along and says, corrects, I guess, corrects their theology, corrects their assumptions. I, we're going to put a couple of examples on your outline and we'll talk about a couple more. This is in John also. Jesus is walking along and he saw a man who was blind from birth And his disciples say, Rabbi, why was this man born blind? Now, here comes the assumption. This is their theology about God. Was it because of his own sins? Now, this is kind of confusing to me. How does a newborn sin? Blind from birth. But anyway, their theology was, if you're blind, if you're handicapped, it was a result of your sins or... Most likely your parents' sins, all right? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. I.e., wrong assumption, right? So then he goes, uh, actually earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about some assumptions that Jewish folks had. And this is in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you've heard the law that says... Love your neighbor. Now, that's in the Old Testament, right? (laughs) This part, and hate your enemy, that's not in the Old Testament. But it's in some kind of law, Jewish law, evidently. He said, you've heard the law. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, when they heard the word neighbor, who were they thinking of? Who were they thinking about? They were thinking about people like them. (laughs) Other Jews. So, Jesus, another time, tells a story about, we call it the Good Samaritan story. Jews hated Samaritans, Samaritans hated Jews, and Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. He makes him the one that treats the injured man as his neighbor. So Jesus says, okay, your neighbor is anybody that has a need that you can help with. It's not people just like you. But love your neighbor, you got that partially wrong, but then that hate your enemy is completely wrong. He says, I say, love your enemies. Well, none of us do that. That's kind of crazy, right? And if you want to really prove you love your enemies, you actually pray for their well-being. Even the ones, people that might persecute you. So, wait, wait a minute. You mean that God loves His enemies? Um, yeah. How do we know that? Well, He... Gives an example. Jesus says, in this way, we will be acting as true children of your Father, meaning in heaven. So we're acting like our Father. How do we know that about God? Because for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. So the rain comes along over the Jewish person's crop, and then it gets to the, the Romans or the Samaritan's crop, and the rain stops. No, it doesn't. So, God is, we could say, God is gracious, giving rain and sunlight to everyone. So, God is gracious to everyone. It made me also think of, uh, of us as sinners. And Paul writes this in Romans. He says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still his enemies. Well, it says the word sinners, but that's the same thing, right? When we're sinners, we're God's enemies. But he doesn't stop loving us when we sin. He doesn't stop loving us if we're his enemies. Now, most of us know about Paul. Paul was this religious fanatic, first for Judaism, (laughs) actually killing and arresting believers until he became a believer, dramatically became a believer. And then he used that enthusiasm to spread the good news about Jesus. And he wrote a lot of our, what we call our New Testament. And in one place, he, actually he's in Colossians, he gives us an illustration, I think, that may help us understand this. He said, these things were like, what's he talking about? He's talking about uh, religion, rules, laws, ceremonies, those different things. He said, these things were like a shadow of what was to come. Now, what do we know about shadows? Well, shadows are if I had a light shining directly on me, there would be a shadow back here. And if, if it wasn't on an angle, if it was straight on, you would have an idea about my height, my width, my shape, right? But you really wouldn't know what I looked like. So you have an incomplete or a partial understanding of me. And so Paul is saying, okay, okay. All the laws, all the religion, the Jewish religion, whatever religion... All that is just an incomplete picture. He said, but what is true or what is complete and real has come and is found in Christ. So I like this term. Jesus is the shadow caster. Uh, We didn't know exactly, completely what Jesus is about. We have prophecies about him in the Old Testament. But then Jesus came in person. And so we no longer have to have a shadow, we have the complete thing. So Jesus was the perfect representation of the Father. And what's God want, what does God want to do for you and I? He wants us to be in relationship with Him. Now it's hard to be in relationship with a shadow, isn't it? A shadow of a person. So you've got to be able to know or see or understand the person to have a relationship with them. So let me ask you a question. What would you say is the currency of a relationship? What is the basis of a relationship? Now, you can get people to obey you. As a parent, you can get kids to obey you because you have authority over power over them. You can take things away from them, give them things, whatever. You can get them to obey you. Or even worse, you can get them to fear you, right? Especially if you get them to fear you. When they grow up and leave your house, what kind of relationship do you have? So, what do you say is the basis of a good relationship? The currency of a good relationship? I would suggest to you it's trust. Trust. Think back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve started this thin thing. What exactly was broken? In the garden, God said, You can eat all the trees, but this one tree, trust me. Did they trust Him? No. So I'm going to eat of that tree anyway. And so could God trust them? No, and then God couldn't trust them. The relationship was broken because trust was broken. It's interesting when John's writing his gospel, he doesn't start out like Matthew and Luke does with a Christmas story. He's trying, he wants to dig into this where Jesus is God, and we want to know what God is like. We look at Jesus. So right in the first chapter of John, we read this in verse 14. So the Word, or God, became human and made His home among us. Jesus left heaven came to earth, right? He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Our faith goes up and down. God is faithful, always faithful. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son, Jesus. So I put on your outline, God revealed Himself through Jesus. He was only a shadow in the Old Testament. Nobody could see Him, but now we can see Him. And we got a clear picture, a clear understanding. Because again, you can't have a relationship with a shadow. So consequently, Jesus invites us, Jesus invites people to trust him. Trusting him is the same as trusting his Father, God. So thinking about this trust thing, I um, thought this was interesting. God is most honored by what? By our trusting. Right? Uh, when we're obedient, it's because we trust him. When we worship him, it's because we're trusting him, whatever it might be. So I gotta think about human relationship. <clears throat> So I've been married for 45 years and if you came to told me something derogatory about my wife you, might, you know what my response would be? That's not true. I know her. That's not her. And I believe she would say the same thing about me. Right? Because we have a trusting relationship. In fact we measure maturity or growth that way don't we? When we first got married, we might, might not do that, right? <laughs> we didn't know each other enough to trust each other. So if that's true, I'd be greatly honored if you told her something and she said, I don't believe it because I know my husband and vice versa. How much more is God honored by the fact that we trust him? We trust what he says, we trust his word. So a question we're going to use in this series is this. Why, um, excuse me, <laughs> what would you do? What would I do if we were absolutely confident, fully trusted that God is with us? That God is who he says and would do what he says he will do. Now, when things are good, that's fine. But what what about when you get bad news? What do you mean when you get bad news? Something bad's happened. Happened to you or somebody you care about. I mentioned this earlier. Uh, When we see that amazing faith, when we see that kind of faith, we want that kind of faith. I do. Don't you? I asked my wife who she thought of when she thought of somebody who had amazing faith. We both thought of the same person. and It's different for everybody. But it was Josh's first wife, Erin. So she's... 31, 32, and gets a death sentence. Three small children and a husband. And basically God's saying to you, okay, you're going to have to leave them. So you have two options, right? You say, God, if that's what you're going to do to me, forget it. Or you can say, I believe in spite of it. And many of you knew Aaron. And that was Aaron, right? Amazing faith. I, I, again, I don't know if I would have that kind of faith. At 31 or 32. And you I was only going to live another year, a year and a half. But I would want to have it, wouldn't you? So, the question we're going to try and answer during the series is this one also. What creates or develops that kind of faith? What are the ingredients? What does God use to develop or strengthen our faith? Now, next steps. An active faith, we're going to call it an active faith. Looks different in every season of life. We've got some teenagers here. Teenage faith is different. Teenage faith is a challenge of uh, peer pressure and morality, uh, whatever that looks like, bullying, drugs, sex, all those different things. Uh, relationship to your parents, uh, finding a, a, you know, a life partner, finding your profession in life. There's all kinds of issues faith issues for them. Then maybe you you get married. Well, marriage has its own faith issues, doesn't it? Then maybe you have some kids, children. Being a parent certainly has some faith issues, doesn't it? And it doesn't stop when they turn 18, folks, right? Keep going as long as you're a parent. Get older, uh, body starts to fail you, other faith issues, right? And we all we all struggle, right? We all take hits in our faith. Something dark comes at us out of the blue. Didn't expect that to happen. So, is your, is my faith up to the most recent challenge? We'll continue this next week. Hopefully you can join us we pray with you and the praise team will then lead us in a closing song. Uh, Father God, we thank you that you are trustworthy. (laughs) But we don't always trust you. That seems kind of silly, but we don't. And sometimes, especially when bad things, in our opinion, happen, it's hard. The last two years have been really, our, our faith has taken a hit with some of the things that's happened in our world. Um, God, I pray that we would have that amazing faith. Earlier today, we were talking about the believers, the Christians in in the Ukraine, uh, worshiping you in the midst of, of war. Amazing faith. So God, as we go through this series, help us understand, help us to grow, help us to mature to the place where our faith tank is full. And For those who maybe have lost their faith or struggling with their faith, We pray a special prayer for them that as we go through this study that they would regain that faith or that faith would grow or maybe establish that faith for the first time. We pray for that. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.